I know for me that's the exciting part of writing when you'll start to see that there's a pattern that you've created that you didn't even know that you were creating. And when all the threads start to weave in together and you think, holy crap, I didn't know that I was doing that, but it makes sense. That's weird. So it's both the most amazing part of writing, but also the sort of hardest and scariest. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. I've just had a fantastic chat with Vanessa McCausland, who is my guest this week on the Convo Couch, and we talked a lot about her latest release, which is Dreaming in French, a book that I absolutely loved and just had to speak to Vanessa about. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Vanessa in a minute, but before we get to that, I just wanted to wise you up on my writing tip for this week. And that is to make yourself accountable to someone else. Now, I did talk about this a little bit as last week's writing tip in terms of having a writing buddy and checking in with each other. Today, I took that a little bit further in that I posted a to-do list on social media on my Instagram account. So I've been spending a lot of time tweaking scenes, going back and, and fixing up scenes and revising, which is important, of course, but I have been doing that as a procrastination tool rather than pushing story forward, getting the bum glue out and just sitting there and writing a new scene. And I know that the reason that I've been doing that is because of fear, basically fear that I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if I can get to the end of this book, even though I know I have to. I do have a deadline at the end of October and Basically, I've just been fiddling around doing everything but writing the next scene. So today I posted my to-do list for the day on Instagram and one at the top of the list was that I was going to write 2,000 words. So after breakfast, I thought, don't do anything else, just start writing. I didn't know what the scene was going to be. Other than that, it was going to be a function of some kind. I didn't know whether it was going to be a dinner or a party or whatever. And I was scrolling through, had been scrolling through social media and saw that the Northern Beaches Readers Festival had their trivia night. Shout out to all the NBRF people out there. And I know it was a huge success where they raised well over $4,000 for the cause and for Story Dogs, which is their chosen charity. So watch out for the Northern Beaches Readers Festival coming at you next year, this around this time next year, I think, in 2024. But I thought, why not make it a trivia night? Draw the inspiration from that and I just launched into the scene put my character in the doorway of the community hall standing there waiting for the trivia night to happen and I knew that there was going to be some conflict with some other characters happening in this scene and I thought look if I can do it in four 500 word blocks that would be great but it, it doesn't actually take much to write 500 words you can get 500 words down pretty easily if you let go of that need to 
have them all be brilliant, have them all be fantastic and be evocative and all that sort of thing that we want them to be, but just to get the story down and to push the story forwards. I got to 500 words and I kept going. I got to 1,000. I made myself a cup of tea. And then I just pushed through till I ended up with 2,006 words. Now, they do have to be revised and it's not the end of the scene, but I left my character hanging at the point where she is about to have a conflict or a bit of a blow up with another character. So I know that I've got something to go back to when I return to that scene either later today or tomorrow. That is my success story for today in terms of my writing is just two things, really drawing inspiration from real life, just throw it in there and see what happens. And just sitting down and writing and not worrying about whether it's good, bad or indifferent and just moving the story forward. You can always edit out the rubbish later. You can tweak all you like later, but just keep moving forward with your story. Hopefully you have had some success with your writing this week. And don't forget, I always love to hear how you're going. If you're a listener of Rights for Women, drop me an email. Let me know what you're reading, what you're writing and how that process is for you. And also if you have any ideas for guests who you'd like to see on the show. So today's guest, as I mentioned, is a return guest, and that is Vanessa McCausland. Vanessa is a Sydney-based author, and she was last on the podcast not long after her second novel, The Valley of Lost Stories, came out, and we spoke about writing dual timelines. Since then, Vanessa has published two subsequent books, The Beautiful Words and Dreaming in French, which is her most recent release. Writing stories has always been an essential part of Vanessa's life. Like many writers, books were her magical escape portals and she spent her early years soaking up as many as she possibly could. Writing provided a similar escape and now she loves nothing more than disappearing into the fictional world of the book she is now writing for publication. Vanessa's stories always feature a mystery or an intrigue of some kind. Their pages abound with beautiful words pardon the pun, that being the title of her third book, but she doesn't shy away from the darker side of life because, in her words, it's only through darkness that we really understand the quality of the light. That description is particularly true of Dreaming in French, which I absolutely adored and which we do talk about today. So we talk about the inspiration for the characters, Vanessa's writing process for this book, things like writing dual timelines, whether she does them separately or together, what she does when she comes up against a wall or a block, the challenges that she had in writing the book, how she handled trying to get across the sense of the French voice in the story and also looking at how she develops the relationships between the characters, which is an essential part of the storyline. So this is a fabulous chat about the book, so it'll really be great for readers, but it is also so much writing craft chat in here for the writers who listen. So sit back and grab a cuppa or maybe pop on your headphones and go for a walk if that's what you'll want to do while you listen to Rights for Women. Let's head off and chat with Vanessa. Vanessa, McCausland, welcome back to Rights for Women. Thanks, Pam. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I doubled back and had a look at when we last spoke on the podcast, and it was in April 2021. I think that oh, wow. Stories was not long out. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was ages yeah. ago. Seems like a lifetime ago. I bet. Yeah, it's a couple of books ago for you. And we talked at the time about lots of things, but writing dual timelines. And I'm sure that's going to come up in our discussion today. But you've got a very recent book out called Dreaming in French, which is fabulous. I devoured this, Vanessa. I absolutely loved it. It was just so beautifully written and 
everything about it, the location, the characters, the intrigue that you set up was just really got me in and I, I didn't want to stop reading. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. I'm so happy that you liked it. <laughs> Before we get going, can you tell us what is Dreaming in French about? So it's based around my protagonist, Saskia Weil. She's living in Sydney with her family when she receives a letter from a French solicitor. And that's telling her that she's inherited her of a villa on a tiny island off the southwest coast of France called Ile de Ré, or the Isle of Ré. And so she returns to this island. She brings her family. And it's where she spent a summer as a 19-year-old. Um, she worked as an au pair on the island. And it's where she met uh, Simone Durant, a French heiress, and Felix Allard, a salt worker. Um, and Simone has actually left this villa, half of it to Saskia and half to Felix, who is now this sort of reclusive actor living on the island. And she's also left Simone Saskia a manuscript written in French, which Saskia must translate in order to understand why Simone has drawn her back to this island that has haunted her for 20, 25, 26 years. And so it's set partly in the present as Saskia goes and stays in this villa on the island with her family, and partly the other half is set in um, the past in Simone's voice. During this summer in the 1990s when Saskia, Simone and Felix met, and so Saskia needs to figure out what really happened in the past in order to save what's most precious to her in the present. Oh, great summary of the story because there's so many different elements to it and uh, we're going to get on to talking about some of those. But what was the inspiration for this one, Vanessa? I know that you were talking then about this, the characters having to come to terms with something from their past and I know that is a feature of your previous books as well, but what was the particular inspiration for this book? Usually I start with a setting with all my books and obviously this island in France is a very sort of large part of the story. So in some ways that was the inspiration but it took me a while to arrive at that. Originally, and I've told this story a few times in the promotion of the book, but Originally, I had this idea of this crumbling old house, which was actually local to me because I do this walk along the foreshore near Manly. And there's this house there that just always intrigues me because it's really big. It's looking over the water at prime position, but it's very neglected. And it's behind this stone wall and there's greenery creeping, moss, and, and it's quiet. It's boarded up, but it seems like someone could still live there. And I just, I guess I was looking for story ideas at the time and I would pass that, you know, and think, what, what's going on there? What is that old house? And then one time when I was walking past, I saw this name that had been inscribed into the concrete when it was obviously still wet and it was Felix. And so I had this idea of this house and this character Felix came to me and Felix is quite French, it can be a French name. And, and then I had Saskia and I started writing this story around this house, but it just didn't work. It just wasn't, and you'd understand this pan too because you're a writer, like it just didn't come alive for me and I couldn't 
make it make it real enough. And then for some reason I was it was during the latter part of COVID and I think I was desperate to travel. And I just thought, oh wow, Ile de Ray. Yeah, I lived there. I lived there myself for six months. And I guess I thought, oh, can I really set a book there? It was like a long time ago. But then I started researching it and looking at some of the villas and old houses on the island and that story that I started with the, the crumbling villa and Ile de Ray urged at some point. And um, that's when the story sort of started to take flight and feel exciting and real. I guess in the end it was the setting that made, that brought the spark that set it alive. And yeah, it was interesting. I didn't know whether I would be able to pull it off because I hadn't been there for so long. But I think because I was 19 when I was there, just like Saskia was in the story, looking back now, it's so young and it was the first time I'd ever travelled alone. And so it really, it made a really huge mark on me and my experience to, to go somewhere and be in a foreign country not being able to speak the language. I'd studied French for years, but you realize then when you go to a country that all the sort of academic study, it, it helps, but you're not fluent. I wasn't anyway. So there was all of that sort of language acquisition as well as the, the feeling of being young and free and also the, the fear of just going somewhere by yourself when you're that young. And so I wanted to encapsulate all of those feelings. And I guess that's when the spark of the idea sort of became something. When I could see, I could see the themes and the emotions that I wanted to explore in terms of, yeah, the travel and the, the use and going to a, a foreign country and learning another language. And I think in retrospect, they are the sort of main themes of the book. Yeah. And great to have those contradictory feelings and emotions to work with right from the get-go like you say being in a foreign country being young having that sense of freedom and mm. to explore but also not knowing not being able to understand the language completely and not knowing anyone and, and you captured yeah. it so beautifully in Saskia so really interesting that you were the same age as the character back then that you were writing I think yeah I think I just that that's just what came out and yeah, I just wanted to capture all of those feelings of being so young and just going somewhere and incredible feeling. And as well, there were no mobile phones back then. There was no email. No one was like doing find my phone on me. No one knew where I was. And I think that I have such a nostalgia for that time because it's over now. It doesn't exist any, any longer. And so I just wanted to explore what a incredible time that was where you did have complete freedom and it was amazing and terrifying at the same time yeah it's so true isn't it like when I traveled in the kind of late 80s it was all you just was either reverse yes. phone call home every now and then or you basically wrote aerograms yes aerograms way of sending and my daughter's traveling now at the moment and if I haven't spoken to her on messenger for a couple of days it's oh god is she all right what's happening yes it's just so different. It's it's really different. So it was great. Yeah. It, and it, of course, it's fantastic for writing and creating tension and creating that sense of the characters being more isolated 
too, isn't it, to be able to put them into that situation and time. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever you can get a plot happening without any um, technology, it's quite freeing. And yeah, it's really nice to be able to write without all of that. And yeah, there's no easy fix for the tension. And you can put plot twists in. And if my past timeline was set now, it just, it wouldn't work. But because it was in the 90s, we just didn't have any of them at the time. Yeah. And I was going to say too, thank goodness for Google Earth because you're able to find Google Earth and just Google in general because you can do so much research online now that you pretty much yeah. have to be in as lovely as it would be to go to those places. Yeah. I, I use Google a huge amount just to look at pictures, watch videos, just reacquaint myself with the island and also do quite a lot of research because there's there's a lot about um, the salt marshes there. Um, and I'd seen those in person, obviously, but I hadn't really known the history of them. Um, and I found that really interesting. Um, there was that, that whole sort of artisanal um, trade was started in the 16th century by monks and passed down through all the generations until today. And they do it in such a beautiful sort of traditional way, like scraping the salt with these old tools that have been used for like hundreds of years. And it's just something so foreign to what we have in Australia. I found it fascinating. And as soon as I started researching into that, I realized, oh, Felix is a salt worker. That's what he does. And then the theme of the salt and the purification and all of that sort of came through. So my research into the island was actually really fruitful. Mm. Isn't it amazing when, like you said, you started with Felix as your original character and the, the crumbling house here in Sydney, mm. and then that kind of morphed into this whole different world and the character doing something completely different. But I just love how all those pieces just start to really, you have all these ideas floating around and then just they gradually just coalesce and become yeah. something totally different to what you'd anticipated. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes I look back and think, God, how did this story come out of that that house and that word on the ground? But I guess that's what creativity is. It's sitting with that uncertainty and just letting your mind not be hindered by anything and just let your thoughts and your ideas go where they will. And I, we were just saying before, I'm in the process of trying to figure out my next book and it's really hard place to sit with because you don't know what you're doing and you're full of doubt, but it helps sometimes to actually think back on how other books started very nebulously and then they somehow came together. It's just turning up every day and just seeing what comes. And somehow I think um, a writer has this thing where I think we pull things together and we find patterns and meaning in seemingly disparate sort of things I know for me that's the exciting part of writing when you'll start to see that there's a pattern that you've created that you didn't even know that you were creating and when all the threads start to weave in together and you think holy crap I didn't know that I was doing that but it makes sense that's weird so it's both the most amazing part of writing but also the sort of hardest and scariest you're so right. I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about creative process a little bit down the track, but 
For this particular book, if you had to put it on a scale of one to 10 and comparing it to your other books in terms of the writing of it and getting to that final, the end, how does it compare to your others? This one was really hard. I don't know whether it was because it was coming to the end of lockdown and we just experienced that whole upheaval in our lives and mentally I might not have been in the best shape or whether it was because I was trying to write in the voice of a French woman on an island I hadn't visited in 20-something years. Um, But I did actually um, give up on this book entirely at one point um, because I just couldn't see a way through. Um, The threads weren't coming together, as I just was saying. Um, So I, I walked away from it for quite a few weeks, maybe even a few months. And But it just kept niggling at me, and I think it was in my subconscious the whole time. And then I just convinced myself to sit down with it again and start something completely fresh, like start in another place, leave behind the bit that was troubling me. And then it's, I, I found a way into it again. But I think it, I think it was probably the hardest book I've had to write. And, yeah, I... There's been a few writing friends who I've talked to about this and we have identified that there's a hard and easy pattern to our books. So it goes like hard, easy, hard, easy, hard. And it's actually Ali Lowe and Joanna Nell. We all were talking and we could all see that was exactly how it went for really? a few of our books. Wow. So I don't know what that is, but yeah, like... Dreaming in French was hard, and then the one I've just finished my structural edits for was easy, and now I'm trying to get the next book started, and it's hard. Maybe that's the creative muse's way of keeping us in line and thinking, don't don't think this is going to be easy all the time. I know. (laughs) I I feel like the pattern needs to be broken at some point. (laughs) That would be very nice if only they were all easy. The um the friendship plotline, Vanessa, uh, which is in the past, and it res- revolves around Saskia, Simon, and Felix. Love the names, by the way. So good. Love the name Saskia. So you mentioned that Felix was the original character that you had, and obviously his character morphed into something quite different when you changed locations. But where did the characters come from? And then how do you go about developing their personalities and backstories? Are they things that kind of evolve for you as you're immersed in writing the story do you do character bios or do brainstorming how does that work for you yeah it's a bit of both I think I'm a bit of a pantser but I do tend to early on I'm trying to figure out I I literally just write down their name their age and their occupation to start with and that sounds really easy but it's really hard because I think the occupation is has such a huge bearing on who the person is. That's what I found anyway. So um, for a long time, I couldn't figure out who Felix was. But when I figured out that he was a salt worker, like the whole of his character opened up because he was down to earth. I could see that he was tanned from the sun. He was, yeah, he was a salt of the earth kind of person. His family was mired in tradition. All of that just came to me. And then with Saskia, at first I had her as like a business owner or something. I knew that she was well-dressed and that stuff mattered to her. But then 
I came upon the fact that she was a, a paper cutter, like she was a paper artist. So she used a stencil, like a stencil knife to cut these uh, incredibly intricate designs into paper. And as soon as I figured that out, I could see that reflected her personality. She was artistic and she, there was a sort of flimsiness to her reflected in the paper and yet an intricacy and an attention to detail and all these parts of her fitted together. And with Simone, she's an heiress. She's very privileged. She's very rich, but she, and she's an it girl, but she wants to be something deeper. She wants to be a writer and not someone that's just seen as beautiful and vacuous. So I think that profession is really important in forming um, their characters and also forming how the plot's going to hang together. Um, that's a really big part of how I discovered the characters. But I also, the voice in the writing is really key at the start for me. So I took a long time to figure out if it was going to be first person or third person. And in the end, Saskia is in the first person and Simone, in the French um, woman, is in the third person. But that was interchanging all the time at the start and I was just like, oh, it doesn't work with Saskia in the third person, but I wanted to make it match and it wouldn't, but then I had to just let go of that and go, actually, it's quite good having the first person and the third person because the third person's more like the past and it's yeah literally the past we're going back into. But that sort of all happened organically. And through trial and error and much gnashing of teeth, <laughs> when the voice did not sound what, I don't know, I don't know what you're looking for, but it just didn't sound right. So I think those two things are really key. And then probably the third thing is I like all my characters to go on a journey and to grow and to change. And that's the sort of basics of storytelling. And I think I identify with them all fairly early on. Do they want what's their purpose and what is their weakness and so those are the things that I'm trying to figure out and that helps me figure out what the plot's going to be and I think once I have those three that all of those elements in place the story starts to glow a bit better but it's quite hard to get all those things in place and to fit into each other and sometimes it's not until quarter way through the book where you figure out Oh, I've got the wrong profession. Like with the manuscript I just um, submitted all the edits for, it was only in the structural edit that my editor came back and said, she's not an environmental reporter, she's a news reporter. And I was like, of course. But it took my editor to see that. And I'd actually just written her as a news reporter, but then named her as something else. Right. And so... Sometimes you're trying to fit them into this old idea of who they are when they've developed throughout the book by themselves. Yeah. And then, of course, each of those characters has their own kind of family history and backstory that you're developing. And then with your past storyline involving the, the friendship of the three, that's a backstory to Saskia as we see her in the current storyline, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And she's very different in the past because she, in the present, she's, she's middle-aged. She 
she's quite shut down and she's a bit numb and she's not in a good place. She's not in a good marriage. And when we see her in the past, she's this 19 year old that yes, she might be, she might be nervous being, having gone to another country, but she's very brave and she's free and she's, yeah, she's actually all these amazing things, but something terrible happened in the past. So it's almost like her reckoning with, with who she was, the good and the bad. So yeah, I guess that putting the past in does layer the characters. I wanted to ask you about the kind of dual plot line there. Obviously with the dual storylines, Vanessa, there's something that happens in the past and we can't say what it is because it's a key part of that storyline, but it's quite integral to Saskia's what happens to her as the story unfolds, mm. the person that she's become, that we see her as in that current time storyline. What do you start with? Do you think in advance about what that pivotal moment is going to be for your characters? Because I think this is something that does happen in all of your stories where you have kind of something from the past that has been really a crucial kind of event for the character and something they have to come to terms with in some way. So is that something that you tend to flesh out before you start or as you're writing? I don't don't always know what it's going to be. I think I have it in all my book and it it can be really hard when you don't know what it's going to be because, yeah, everything's leading towards that revelation. And I think the reason, part of the reason this book was quite difficult is it took me quite a while to figure out exactly what had happened (laughs) Um, and and how that was all going to fit together. It's like a a puzzle, Mm. a puzzle piece that's integral but that has ramifications for all the other pieces in the jigsaw. Yeah, I hope to have a bit of an idea of what it might be and then as I go along and the characters are building, I start to figure out what the thing is going to be because obviously it's got to fit thematically with what the whole story is saying as well. Like the first couple of months of writing a book is a very heightened creative time where my brain is trying to figure out what on earth this is going to be about, what this thing is going to be. I wish I was someone that could just figure out the whole plot in the spreadsheet or with post-it notes or something and just know but it doesn't seem to be that's how my process is. But at the same time, I know how terrifying it can be to not know at all through the whole book what's going to happen because with The Lost Time was a Driftwood because I just started writing a novel. I didn't really know what I was doing. I remember getting to three quarters of the way through and saying to my husband, can you try and help me figure out what the plot twist is going to be for this? I've had those conversations too. Because I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I don't know. It's the thing. I don't even know what it is. And yeah, it, I figured it out. But yeah, it's quite a difficult way to write. But having said that, you can do it that way too. Because I know a lot of our writer friends are complete pantsers and write entire books that way. And even like full on like crime and stuff. They write that way. So. It always amazes me with the crime writers that they don't know who d- who did it until they I know. get to that point. I'm like, how can you not know? But of course, know. there's the whole revision process, isn't there, where you go back yeah. and find everything and move things around. Yeah, exactly. So, and with your, we did talk about this last time, but just to revisit it, Vanessa, with your um, double timeline, 
do you write all of the contemporary t- timeline in one go and then all of the past and break it up or are you alternating no. all the time? I'm alternating the whole time and I always do that with the, the present and the past. And I think it's partly it's partly to break things up for myself. Like I, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, I don't know where this present timeline's going. I'll go into the past now. It's just a really good way to shift the, the interest and the tension and the focus, I find, for myself writing it because I do not really know where things are going a lot of the time. I'm the same as the reader and I want to keep things interesting. So I think alternating between the present and the past like that as I write just keeps it quite like alive. But having said that, I think with the Valley of Lost Stories, there was part of that I did write as a whole and then I fed it back through so I, I had a bit of a play with that but I found that a lot more difficult mm. trying to figure out oh where should that go yeah I find it a lot easier to just do it the first time around because I think as well and you would know this as well but you've got to be very clear for your reader when you're jumping back and forth mm. in time because it can get really confusing And so I think I'm trying to always just do it the most straightforward way as possible so that it doesn't get too confusing. And I know when I'm doing my big edits and like I'm reading the book over and over again, my brain just loses the plot. And I cut, like, I get to a point after about three reads where I'm like, I'm getting so mixed up now. So I'm also doing it for myself, I think, just to try and make it as simple as possible. Yeah. And of course, with this one too, the you had one character, Simone, who was in the past and written in the yeah. person and all of the present time storyline. I'm just trying to think. That's right, isn't it? All the present time storylines yeah. from Saskia's point of view. Yes. Yeah. I guess that kind yes. of helps you keep your head into in one character or the other in one time frame or the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I ended up doing with this is each chapter has got starts with Saskia in the present, but then there's Le Passe, which is the past, and the second half of the chapter is in Simone's voice. Um, And yeah, like that just that's just how that happened from the start. I was like, should I make them separate chapters? But in the end, I think it just worked that way. Definitely. So it's funny how books evolve and how the structure of them comes about organically. I don't know what what it's operating on but I think it's just literally from having read so many books you have this instinctual idea of what is going to work and what isn't yeah um but yeah it's a weird process it is it's a very weird process so just talking about that whole instinctual side of the writing because it is I found it to be a real page turner I wanted to keep reading and find out what was going to happen next and and where the storyline was going and as you say, I think having the alternating kind of timelines and character voices actually helps with that because you end on a, a certain point, might be a heightened point or a character yeah. scene or reflection or something with one character that kind of, it's almost like you're holding your breath to, to get to that character again. But in the meantime, then you're of course finding out about the other character in the past. So yeah. That really helped. But is that kind of getting that tension onto the page? and into the writing is that something that you're consciously doing as you're drafting or does that come in more for you in the revision process how does that work for you 
I feel like it's an instinctual thing from having read a lot of books. I think I'm always thinking though of how to pull the tension. I don't know. It's just always in the back of my head when I'm writing. And I do remember, like, sometimes I'll even write in capital letters, start to add things up now, just as a note to myself. Um, Like, when you're starting to get to two-thirds through the book, you're really going to need to be starting to bring things up and together and put pressure on the characters. But I'm not really, yeah, apart from that, I'm not, I don't have the whole turning point thing I don't some people work very strictly to certain structures mm-hmm. I don't think I don't do that I don't even know the sort of way to talk about that stuff but it scares me because it's so oh maybe I don't have enough whatever here um, <laughs> instead I just work on more of a okay you need I, I need to put in as much tension as I can I need to put the, the character under emotional pressure um but I try and feel it out as a sort of instinctual thing rather than overanalyzing it too much in my head because I think if I go too much into that, it shuts my creative process down. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes I think, maybe I should do a course. Um, Books, that's a course in itself. More than four books. You've published four books. You've written more than that. Yeah. But each one's a learning experience, isn't it? Do you find that? Yeah, definitely. Yes. I think each book teaches you what not to do because there's always something that's a massive fail. And in some edits, it'll be, okay, the beginning doesn't work. You have to totally rewrite the first chapter. Some other books has been the ending's not working. You really have to work on that. And then other books have been, there's not enough darkness, make it darker, make it more tense. So they all have their own unique neuroses. And so, yeah, there doesn't seem to be uh, a single thing that always is the problem. It's always a different problem. Yeah. So I think that's the thing that you learn. It doesn't seem to get easier for me. Does it get easier for you? It definitely does not get easier. <laughs> I wish it got easier. No, I find if, if anything, it's gotten harder. You start to become aware of, oh, I'm supposed to have a turning point here and I've got too many words in this split section. That back, almost like the more you about the theory, the harder the actual creative process becomes because you're trying to measure yourself against these external things that we're supposed to Yeah. Do. Um, yeah. If you hit a block, Vanessa, what do you do? You alluded to that earlier when you said when you came up against a, a thing where you just thought, I just don't know what happens next. What do you do when you get to that point? I give up and run away. <laughs> oh, you should go on lots of walks and eat a lot of uh, chocolate. No, I, I think I literally do just leave it. I remember reading in The Luminous Solution, Charlotte Wood's book on craft, one of the craft books I have read. When she was, I think, writing it was the weekend and she just couldn't figure out how it all fitted together. And, and so I think she left it for like mum. And, and then she said she could pinpoint, she can remember the spot on the shower tile wall that she was looking at when everything just fell into place. Oh, wow. And it's almost like your subconscious is working on it while you've left it. And I do think that's sometimes just the answer to just walk away. And, and if it, if it comes back to you 
and that and you can find a way through than it was meant to be. But yeah, I don't know whether you can just keep trying to force something that just isn't working. Mm-hmm. You just end up becoming extremely angry. <laughs> yeah. Like you say, your brain has this way of coming up with solutions that might involve going back and restructuring or redoing some something you've already written, but then that'll allow you to push through to the next yeah. or whatever. Yeah. One of the things that I loved too, Vanessa, a couple of things. We were talking about the tension and you do a really great job of, particularly with Dylan, Saskia's husband and their relationship, creating this kind of almost invisible tension between the characters. So there's the internal conflict. There's obviously the external conflict. But you do a fabulous job of really creating that sense of tension between these two without it almost being stated or spoken. Can you talk a little bit about that, putting that kind of relationship on the page? Obviously, you don't want to give away too much about that yeah. because it is into a yeah. plot, but how did you work with that type of relationship that you were developing there? That was a really good analysis, by the way. It was like you're an English teacher or something. <laughs> I used to be. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. No, you're, you're really good at analysing things that I didn't even think that or know that I was doing. So I think... Yeah, that that was something I did have to work on in edit because I think initially I don't think it was as subtle. I think it was a little bit too overstated and overplayed their the dysfunction in their relationship and I think I just had to really pull it back so that, yeah, there was like a subtlety to the tension. And if you think about tension within marriages or in relationships it's often it just it can be just one word or a look or the way something's said and because you know the person so well you know what they mean and you know what they're implying and like a whole sort of field of emotion can just be expressed disdain or frustration or yeah, and so I think I really focused on those small moments between married couples <laughs> because really it's just in the day-to-day living of a life that all those things come to a head. Yeah. And they've got kids as well, so sometimes it's just about someone not doing something right with the kids or, yeah, I guess in some ways it's, it's getting the psychology right yeah. between people and yeah just the dialogue yeah maybe sometimes it's just saying less I think that's what I did with some of that interaction between Saskia and Dylan taking it out so that my editor will often say you've already shown this in the way that they've just had this dialogue you don't need to then state it so it's sometimes taking things away and Yeah, and I wanted to explore the kind of relationship that they have, which is one that's emotionally abusive. And it's that's the thing about those relationships. They're very subtle and they're very damaging. That was a hard thing to get right because I wanted to get it right because it's an important area to explore, but it's something that I have had personal experience with myself. And so I felt like, I could at least portray some of the stuff that I had gone through. And I found it really important to write about because 
often people will say, why didn't the woman just leave? Like, why didn't you just leave him? And that's the whole issue with that type of relationship that the, the man, it's not always a man and a woman, but in this case it is the man wears the woman down. Her, her self-esteem gets worn down so far that she has no strength and no sense of self anymore and she actually can't leave. And so I just wanted to explore what that looks like. Mm. Oh, you do it really well. And I'm thinking we were talking before about gestures and that unspoken language and I don't think it gives away too much, but there is a scene later on in the book where he just puts his hand on her leg and mm. the instant that he does it, she knows. Mm. And it's just yeah. it's conveyed in this just really subtle way to the reader what it means and it was quite chilling that's very insightful Helen I have to say <laughs> it was really well done another thing that I thought was interesting it a lot of the book as we said is set in France and this is a question that comes up often when I teach writing and things people will say oh if you've got a character who speaks in a different language or has a dialect or an accent how much of that do you put on the page and how do you try and get that voice of the character across because of course mm. you're writing in English for a largely English audience. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided because you do use a few French phrases here and there and mm. they were very evocative and they gave that sense of place and the language as well but can mm. you just talk a little bit about how you decided to tackle that? Yeah it was part of what made the book difficult to write I think because I am speaking in a French woman's voice Initially, when I wrote Simone, I, obviously it's written in English, but I had quite a lot of French words. And then my editor said, it doesn't make sense in a way to use the French words for Simone because in a way she's French. So just use the French words for Saskia and leave Simone just in English as though if you wanted, you could imagine that she's speaking in French. But it was a it was definitely something that we considered in the editing stage because there's there's a certain way that French people speak English. So I had to think back to how a French person would phrase something in English. And that sort of was how Simone's voice evolved, where sometimes she would say something. I remember when I was living in France and a French person would say, Shall we take a drink? Mm. And in English, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, do you want to have a drink? Yeah. But the French, like they, they say, take a drink. Yeah. And so I had little things like that in her voice because I could hear her speaking with the French accent. So it's quite, it was quite tricky, but, and I did want to distinguish it as well from Saskia's voice. So sometimes Simone's wording is almost overwritten. Because I think when someone's speaking another language, they're almost using too many words. Yeah. So if I speak in French, I'll say the more formal thing instead of what I would just normally say in English. In a way, Simone's speaking in a more formal way because that is evocative of a French person trying to speak English. It's a tricky thing to tackle, isn't it? Because you still want to get across that sense of the character. And of course, the language yeah. is so integral to that. And I don't think I could ever write a character in another language that I hadn't spoken. 
Like I was fluent in French. I'm not anymore because language is such a fluid thing. But I did go back to Alliance Francaise and studied for nearly a year while I was writing this book just to get wow. my head back to it. So, yeah, I think that really helped with the French as well. But I also had a, someone French that went through all the grammar for me and showed me all my mistakes, even though I was writing very simple French. It was a friend of mine whose husband is French, and I paid them in a lot of wine as a thing. <laughs> I'm sure um, they appreciated that. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you too, actually, because and this is related to the French and the language type thing, is the device of the manuscript. You mentioned mm. when you were telling us what the book was about, that there is a manuscript that is written by Simone that ends up in Saskia's hands. Yeah. What kind of decisions did you make both while you were writing and then in the revision process about how to use that manuscript as part of telling the story? Yes, I guess thematically I wanted it to be. So it's almost as Saskia relearns the language and relearns French, she is able to read this manuscript, which is essentially a manuscript of her past. It's telling the truth about what happened in the past. It's this idea that she is getting in touch with her younger self, who was fluent in French. Just that idea of the language and her brave younger self helping her shut down trapped middle-aged self. I really wanted that to be thematically what her journey was. The manuscript played that role in, it's really hard for her to read this book in French, but she, it's hard for her because of what she must face and also intellectually hard. But it, it, it ends up being this process by which she makes touch with her younger self and with the language and thereby faces things and I guess tries to reckon with her past. So that was the device that I wanted for the manuscript. And also with Simone's voice in the past, there could be an idea that maybe that is the manuscript. Saskia, like that's a little bit ambiguous. I'm not sure whether that's what that actually means, but it could. And yeah, I just love the idea of hidden, you know, mm. books in drawers mm. and lost meanings, all of that. And of course, when I was at the villa, there's this fabulous library of old books. Just fantastic. The other thing I wanted to ask you was about this gorgeous cover. It's quite different to your previous book's covers, isn't it? Very, yes. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to use that gorgeous image? Because when I actually, when I first started reading it, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting about dreaming in French. We've got the woman. For those of you who are just listening on the podcast, if you haven't seen the book, hop on the website and have a look. But it's a woman in the ocean or in the water, head tilted back, arms outstretched, head facing up towards the sky. It's quite an evocative image. And then, of course, when you start reading the book, there are so many different levels on which this cover works. Yeah, so my publisher said, are you open to having a person on the cover this time? And I said, oh, okay, but I don't just want it to be, you know, the back of a woman because that's, you know, something that's very, very often used. I said, I want it to be something different. And so I was hesitant because I, I did love my last cover for The Beautiful Words and I think that was perhaps a little bit more of a literary cover. 
And I think my book's sort of a little bit of a crossover, but this is a more commercial cover. But I think they wanted to make it more commercial. I think it's also appealing to a slightly different demographic, maybe a little bit younger. I I feel like that's what's happened with this book in a way, which I don't mind at all. But yeah, when I saw it, I did, it did make sense in terms of it really does evoke the story well. There is a scene where the three characters are floating in like salt and they're they're all holding hands, looking towards the sky, arms outstretched. And I, I was like, that could almost be that cover or they're often swimming in the sea. It's summertime. You get the feeling of the heat from the colors in the cover. So yeah, it's funny with your books, when you see the cover, it's never how you think it's going to be. Yeah. Um, because you've got such a vivid, well, I have always such a vivid image and it does, it never fits the cover, but you, you know, you grow to understand that work, um, or you just, you get used to it and you, you like it. Um, but with this one, as soon as I saw it, I did think that does reflect the meaning, mm. the, the themes of the book, but I, I love all my covers for different reasons, but I never have looked at a cover and gone, yes, that completely sums up the book. It's so hard, isn't it? So many things that you're doing in the story that capturing all that is is almost impossible. What about the title, Vanessa? Did it always have this title? It didn't always, but as soon as I arrived on this title, I knew that I would finish the book because I was like, that is the title. That feels like it sums the whole thing up. I, I struggled with it for a long time, but then that title solidified things for me whereas some books I think can like with the book that I've just submitted my structurals I don't have a title for that yet but it doesn't matter but for this one because I struggled so much with it getting the title right was unlocking a key unlocking a door I was like okay I can now finish this book and I know what it's about whereas with some of the other books, the, ch- the titles have changed and it hasn't been as integral. Mm. Um, I love that idea of the, the title unlocking the key to the story almost. Yeah. yeah. Which also leads on to another question that I have for you. We alluded to this before when we're talking about the blocks and what you do when you get blocked, but do you do specific things to nurture your creative self? Are you somebody that does the Julia Cameron artist date or, or what are the things that you do to keep your creative well filled? Oh, that sounds good. The artist date. I'll have to Google that one. I need yeah. to do that. That sounds great. Um, yeah, I think in some ways I do that kind of thing. I can feel when my creative well is empty and I... It might just be like watching an amazing film. Like I watched the Kate Blanchett film Tar the other night and I was just like, wow. And somehow that inspires me to write because it's just so incredibly crafted and so well acted and it just ignites this excitement of storytelling. Or sometimes I'll just let myself read instead of feeling guilty that I should write. I'll just go, no, this is actually the flip side of the coin. Reading is actually work. Now it's all feeding into the same thing. I also go in nature. That really helps me. Just walking by the beach or going for a bushwalk, all of that really helps. And sometimes also just like I live on the northern beaches and sometimes I'll just feel like I need to go into the city 
and sit in a little yeah. cafe and watch people. Like I need to mix up my environment. Yeah. So that I don't get too stuck in the same, I don't know. I think you can get stuck a bit. And yeah. so you just have to change things. I think change is a big part of it to help kickstart new ideas. If you want new ideas, you need to put yourself somewhere new with new people. Mm. And I'm very affected by my environment, extremely affected. And so if I go somewhere completely new, I'll feel really different. And so that will give me something else. I subscribe to the Paris Review and they have this amazing thing where they send you a poem in your email every day. And that's the first thing I do in the morning. I'll read my Paris Review poem. And it might take like less than a minute, but I really like that idea of just starting my day that way. And like I do, I love words and that's really why I write. The plot is really hard for me, but I really love beautiful sentences and creating the voice and the words and that the thing that I always come back to and that's the thing I love to read. Obviously, I love a, a great plot and story, but if I find a, a, a book where that just has the most amazing voice mm. that I just fall into, for me, that's why I read and why I write it. Mm. And that's poetry, yeah. Yeah. As someone who, a lover of words and language and obviously a very creative person, how do you deal with or how do you handle the kind of business side of being a writer in terms of having to do social media and speak mm-hmm. at events and put yourself out there in that public space? Is that something that you enjoy or is it a bit of a struggle for you? How do you manage that? That's a great question. I think it's gotten easier over the years, but that's at first it was very difficult, the public speaking in particular. But I'm just coming off the promotion of dreaming in French now and I feel like it, it was easier this time around than it was the last time, and that was easier than the time before. But having said that, now I'm going into a period of writing where I'll just be in a very enclosed, like singular, like solo place, and so then that's hard to then come out of to be more in the world and promote, promoting and that mm. kind of thing. And the social media, I don't, I just go with the flow with that I don't have any sort of oh I'll post this on this day or but I do find that I'm addicted to it at the moment because I have been through that promotion and so now I'm going to have to wean myself off it and that's actually what my next book is about because I do struggle with that because social media is fantastic for a lot of things but it's not good for creativity and for writing books (laughs) it's very distracting so addictive, um, isn't it? It's so addictive. So that, yeah, that's really hard. And I don't really know the answer to that yet, except that usually I put my phone at the other end of the house and I don't go on it while I'm writing. Just like the ding of a text message and then you're out and then you're in your phone and then you're down the rabbit hole and you've lost 40 minutes. So that's quite hard to manage. But yeah, I, I find it difficult to go between writing and promoting, for sure. They're two very different parts Mm. of myself. And I definitely find just sitting in a room alone writing to be much easier than promoting. 
But having said that, it is really lovely to meet readers. Um, and when I'm really struggling with sitting in a room alone, I sometimes think about the people I've talked to whose words have touched me and I've touched them with my words. And then I'm like, oh no, keep going. So it can be a, it can be an encouragement as well yeah. to think back on, on that reader feedback. Keep you motivated. Yeah, that's very true. So what's next, Vanessa? You said you, you've handed in a book that's going to come out potentially next year or early in 2025. Is that still a little bit behind closed doors? I, I can't talk a lot about it, but I've just been giving a, basically a one-sentence premise for it, which is so much more of a psychological thriller slash crime than any of my others. But having said that, it does it is very much um, about a sense of place. It's set around a lake. Um, and it's written in my same sort of evocative style. So, but it also has an element of, don't really know how to describe it, but a little bit of like the lovely bones where it's basically about a woman who is trapped in her most liked Instagram post. And so it's got that kind of element to it as well. So it's a bit of an exploration of social media Sounds and that really kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit different, but sometimes you just got to go with the thing that's coming and it came very strongly, this story. Yeah. <laughs> I really look forward to that. Just before I let you go, Vanessa, question that I often finish with, and I did check back to our previous interview and I hadn't asked you this, I don't think, in our last chat, but what would you say is at the heart of your writing? A lot of things, but I think there is... First and foremost, I think probably a love of words and language, a love of play, and also just an exploration of human relationships, really. I'm just fascinated by people and what motivates them, and also the light and shades of people's character. I'm interested in going into the dark and also seeing how the light can find a way through the dark and illuminate things. And Sarah, and I think it really sums up your writing so beautifully. Oh, thanks, Pam. So thank you so much for joining me again on Rights for Women. It's always a pleasure to chat to you. And I, as I said, loved Dreaming in French and can't wait for the next one, which is going to be a little bit more of a thriller. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been so lovely talking to you. I could tell that you, yeah, you really got, got the book and I, I love talking about craft as well i find yeah. it fascinating hopefully the listeners will too. i'm sure they will <laughs> thanks for listening to rights for women i hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest if you did i'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, 
Every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. 